Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here in the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And hope everyone's doing well out there wherever you're listening from. We have a very, very special show that we're airing this week. We have a Kai Records feature for you that was produced by Nick Hamilton of Vitelli Recordings out of London. It's a feature that is scheduled to appear on several stations throughout the world, but we're bringing it to you this week to coincide with the Kai Records U.S. showcase that's taking place at Issue Project Room in New York City this weekend. Longtime listeners of the show are likely very familiar with the work of Graham Lampkin and his Kai label. Graham's been a guest on our podcast show twice now, and we, of course, regularly feature almost all Kai-related releases on the podcast show as they are a continuous source of both inspiration and fascination for us. For this special feature, though, Nick uh, started off by providing Graham with a series of cues and questions to which Graham recorded his responses at home over both sides of a C90 cassette. And then the recording, as you'll hear, captures some of these incidental and accidental sounds of Graham's surroundings, which, of course, is a common element heard throughout much of his sound work that he's done. And then Nick also reached out to several Kai artists to get some insight into their work and to get some exclusive and unreleased tracks. Using Graham's tape as sort of his guide, he then weaved together their words and music into this wonderful two-hour feature that charts a very unique history of Kai Records up to date. So throughout the show, you'll hear not only from Graham, but from Monique Darge, Tim Goss, Vanessa Rosetto, Matthew Rivere, Matthew Hopkins, Mark Harwood, and Matt Crefting. So we thank Nick for his efforts in putting this together and for giving us the opportunity to present this to you. So hope you enjoy the show. Hi Nick, this is Graham. I'm going to take a pass at these questions you sent now. Hopefully this level is alright. I've got the mic balanced in front of me on a cereal box. Uh, the window's open. And it's just started to thunder, so hang on. I'll shut that. Um, well, Kai was uh, initiated in uh, 2001 to release a solo record I wanted to put out. And I had no interest from anyone. The stock and trade was an all-time low. No one wanted to touch this record. So I did it myself. Uh, it was absolute disaster from a sales point of view. I pressed up 200 of them. And it took me seven years to sell 200 records. And I didn't sell 200 records. I got A lot of them got given away. That was really it.
That is pissing down out there. I've got to shut that window. Hang on. <clears throat> All right. Um, well, Salmon Run kickstarted Kai back into gear. It was originally commissioned by a label called HP Cycle. Now, I don't know if they're still going or what happened to them. But they wrote to me out of the blue and said, you haven't done any music in a long time. We'd be excited if you would do a solo record for our label. So I was kind of curious by the challenge of doing another record. So I did Sam Run and uh, sent, them the, sent them the files and they were not interested in doing it at all. And it was too much. They didn't like the use of samples and they didn't like that kind of schizophrenic collage nature of the music. I think they were hoping for a for another Shattering record. So I'd spent quite a bit of time putting this record together and I was very happy with the way it came out. So I had uh, no real option other than to, to do it myself. Um, Kai 2. Uh, Pressed up uh, 300 of them and it did all right. started as a kind of a concept record about Sasquatch, Bigfoot, uh, and it had a wonderful cover collage of uh, screen grabs from alleged Bigfoot videos and all sorts of things pertaining to, pertaining to Sasquatch in a kind of a, in a rough jumbled collage. With the same track listing, but there was one, uh, there was one track currency of dreams that wasn't on the original album because of the way the program divided into the 20 minute sides so when I did the, the CD when I decided to take another look at it I put the other track in which I liked and had done earlier and then uh, I thought well this needs a fresh coat of paint so I used that photo that is on the front and the back which is just me uh, standing in my kitchen Drunk in a dressing gown, which is a fairly good, uh, fairly good visual clue to the contents of that one.
reissues Shadowing, Reasons and Reactions. Uh, well, Reasons, I suppose, is because I thought it was worth doing. I'd been asked once or twice by people over the years if these now out-of-print records were ever going to come back. And it seemed like a good opportunity to test the water with a kind of a double overview with a few unreleased things, a few live things, very much in the spirit of the kind of compilations that I, I enjoy listening to of bands when I'm not totally familiar with them. A primer, I think they call them. display all these 
archival documents that have amassed in my cupboard over the years. Yellowing photos, lyric sheets. And I think it came out very well. And it seemed to do very well. Even for a CD, uh, it, it sold through quickly and people were generally quite positive about it. My name is Monique Derge and I am living in Ghent, in Belgium. I'm mainly busy with music, but also with performance and with visual arts. And in the realm of music, I have always been very much fascinated by sounds in general. That's when I was reading and teaching about the futurist movement, I could fully agree that sounds of machines and engines are uh, as interesting as the sounds of, uh, for example, musical instruments. But it's not only the industrial sounds, also nature is very inspiring to me. I first encountered Monique's music in the 90s, I was at Scott Faust's house having one of his legendary evenings and uh, he put Sounds of Sacred Places LP on. I was totally flabbergasted by it. I thought it was fantastic. And it became one of these holy grail kind of records for me and I totally studied it and absorbed it and it's influenced me more than any other record probably. And it was always a, a great desire of mine to pay homage to Monique in some kind of way, as an influence. And so when I was in the position to start representing other artists on Kai, Monique was the first person that I reached out to. And it turns out she's also an incredible, friendly person and we, we get on great, we're good friends. And so uh, first Soundies was made with the old work, then Crete Soundies uh, with the environment sounds of Crete was released, and then later a re-edition of Sounds of Sacred Places. Uh, all these places at that time were in Ghent. Uh, I have always uh, loved to travel, and little by little I was uh, thinking of, hey, that would be nice if I could do the same thing in different uh, spaces on earth and my most recent soundscape is a very tiny one of five minutes uh, made uh, with sounds of Budapest and one of the objects I enjoy a lot is a little toy I bought from a street merchant and it is a, a wooden a little plate with a handle and four little chickens on top of it that are connected with rope and a little ball underneath. And if you turn it, the four little chickens start to pick. 
and they make a very funny sound. So pick, 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 it goes the whole time. And it repeats and uh, it starts with snoring and it ends with a chicken call in the morning, a cock. It makes like a story and it was not intended at all.
Uh, yeah, there was a couple of years where the schedule picked up a bit. I had this kind of desire to make the label seem less as a kind of a vanity thing for me and more as a sort of a, you know, functioning, uh, self-managing business where I didn't have to be uh, on the records or involved in them so much. So I invited a lot of other artists whose work at the time was of interest. And it rolled along like that for a few years. Softly, softly, copy, copy. Uh, well, that record was um, based initially on uh, tape manipulations I'd made. It kind of made use of, of a database of recordings that had been made and not put to any use. So I had this, this library of weird field recordings, all sorts of stuff. And I thought it would be nice to make a fairly fast-paced, restless collage using these sounds. I have uh, a fondness for like Tangerine Dream, and I have a collection of their live audience tapes. And a lot of the sounds I use as a basis for Softly Softly Copy Copy were slowed down audience recordings from Tangerine Dream, but before the band actually started playing, so you'd get the the stadium or the hall ambience rustling um, you know the, the the buzz of electricity and then just as the sequences and the, and the instruments start to fade in I would cut that tape and just use that beginning bit and work with those kind of pre-show sounds from Tangerine Dream shows so uh, that was the foundation of that and then like I said I applied these other cassettes that I'd had collaged and then I invited uh, Samara Lebowski, who's a friend of mine, and Austin Argentieri, who was a guy who used to uh, go to school at Vassar College down the road from where I live. I thought it'd be nice to have two very different people supplying additional sounds. So Samara gave me some very nice violin work and free reign to do whatever I wanted with it. And then Austin gave me uh, acoustic guitars and um, some some bells and some chimes and you know I laced those onto the recordings as well
kind of out of necessity if these things were going to get out, but I did them myself. And um, I like the control element. I'm not crazy about other people interfering with the packaging or telling me what needs to be on the record. I think it's really my business. So I enjoy that aspect of it. Of course, the cons are I've got to do all the boxing up and the donkey work and deal with distributors and all that, which I could certainly do with less of. It does sour the whole thing, to be honest with you. The megalomaniac is winning out over the labourer, but you know, the balance shifts. Call back the Giants. Tim had always uh, dallied with music, even before he was in the shadow ring. I remember he had a piano in his house, and he had a computer up one of these Commodores, and he would always be tinkering around doing these little things. And then after the shadowing folded... Um, I was sort of a bit of a loss, really, what I wanted to do musically. I was just putting together tracks and sort of, you know, come what may. But there was no intention on my part to have anything released. And then I guess it started to become more of a serious idea in his mind and he sent me uh, the track Call Back the Giants. And I thought it was extraordinary. And I said, well, why don't we do this? He said, I don't have a name. I said, well, Call Back the Giants is, is perfect for you. And so that was, that was born. And uh, Jack Call Back the Giants sort of emerged over a very short period of time. I, I, I like its mythology. Um, I like mythology, so and, and a world which was once inhabited by giants, you know, the great chalk giants that are carved into the British countryside, and I, I sort of love all that stuff. And I like the idea of being able to call them back through the mists of time. Call them home, boys. When I've written the lyrics, I realised that it would be good if I had a female vocal to sort of offset my own. And um, my stepdaughter, Chloe, who's only eight at the time, uh, was interested in music so I sort of roped her into it really at the time um, but everything on there is her, her her vocals are completely her own incarnation She's she was absolutely brilliant all the inflection in her voice and everything there was no direction on my part we went through it a couple of times and then we, then we recorded it that was it
ambition. I love the texture of the music. He's never completely let go of that kind of amateurish DIY element which I think is important. He's great with words. He has a very unique uh, way of expressing himself with lyrics, character voices. It's a, it, what a wonderful ham he is. Uh, yeah, fantastic guy. The Historic 1812, I, I really like its minimalism, I like its sparseness, um, I particularly like its vocals, uh, which were recorded, I think it was at a, a dinner, Sunday dinner, which uh, I invited my, my father over to, so that, that's him on the track, and I think they sound really, really good.
Let's move on to Vanessa. I was first introduced to Vanessa and her work probably by reading a review of her CDR she had out called Dogs in English Porcelain, which aside from having a great title was a fantastic CDR. Uh, and so when I looked into her and I contacted her, she had her own label and she'd done three, four, five um, other CDRs. And she struck me as someone who was... Uh, making very interesting work and very underrepresented. So I thought she would be a great person to uh, uh, offer a little more exposure to. So we we started working together with uh, <coughs> Mineral Orange. And then I guess two years passed, we did uh, Exotic Exit. This is Vanessa Rossetto. I work mostly with found sound and incidental sound, combining these with instrumentation. Mostly viola, violin, cello, and the manipulation of objects. Most of the pieces on Mineral Orange were made up of recordings from inside my home and in my immediate environment. Exotic Exit was my second Kai LP, and while I was still using the same methods as I had been all along, the content was beginning to expand outward a bit. I feel like I was showing myself a bit more than I did on earlier releases. There was an article recently on the Wire magazine site by Salome Vogelin that talked about a modern generation of field recorders who were not attempting to perfect the absolute transparency of the genre's past, but rather were present and visible in their work. I would argue that this isn't wholly new. An example from the past would be something like Luke Ferrari's Far West News, where he interviews people directly, and you hear the voice of the composer unswervingly and actively front and center. 
I was moving in that direction on exotic exit, but went further that way with whole stories. My third Kai LP, which is in my mind very direct, even to the point of being self-referential. The Kai corpus has been very important to me. Records like Soundies and Crete Soundies and Astor's releases and Manhunter and the work that Matthew Rivera is doing have influenced me a great deal. I remember Salmon Run was life-changing to me when I first heard it, just absolutely vista-expanding to the way that I viewed what was possible to achieve with recorded work. I'm not sure that I would be doing what I'm doing today in the way that I'm doing it had I not heard Salmon Run when I did. Buses 
foot from rainy shoes. And every time I would fall, I would hear her sigh and mutter hoarsely under her breath. She never could look me in the eye after that. My body was never balanced. The orientation of my head, the directional movement was never consistent. Somehow, in all this time falling over and over, it is still a surprise every time it happens. You never see it coming until it's overtaken you, and I suppose if you did, you would avoid it. Matthew Revert, he is an interesting guy. He's an author, he's a graphic designer, he's a musician, I've just found out. He does a lot of our layouts and our graphic design, he has fantastic ideas. You've seen him at his best on the photographs, two CD set that I did with Jason. You know, we're very lucky to have him. His music's actually very good, you should ask him to send you some stuff. Nick. He does these weird hermetic miniatures where he's mumbling in public and <laughs> it's like you gotta hear it. It's really something else. Hi, I'm Matthew Rivere and I'm going to attempt to talk about my music even though doing so seems like a counterintuitive thing to do. So in describing my work, I mean it's very insular. When I recorded it it was wasn't under the assumption that anyone would really hear it. And I guess that I'm very lucky that of those few who did listen to it, some were musicians who I've admired for a very long time and create work that 
that I'm in awe of. I'm talking about people like Vanessa Rosetto, James Rushford from Manhunter, um, and of course, Graham Lambkin. Graham heard some of this work and for whatever reason, he heard what I heard and he wanted to listen to it. And it has resulted in this situation where one of my favorite record labels is releasing an album of my material. And that's just still blows my mind. But when I was considering the musical direction I wanted to take, I I think the real trick was I wasn't considering. I, I simply did something that was very instinctive to me, something that felt very right, something that was a language that I could understand and I responded to. And that was one of the joys of not making music with the intention of sharing it with anybody. And I was able to completely forego notions of fidelity, production value, technique, and just focus solely on what was around me in the immediate vicinity to use the sound sources. I used an old Tascam 4-track, which I was given for Christmas when I was a teenager by my sister. It was just really freeing to have nothing to work with. And I guess as a writer, I wanted to find a way to marry both the writing and the music, which is why spoken word is such a, a large part of what I'm doing now. I've been helping Graham out with little design aspects here and there relating to Kai for a while now. And I've been working very closely with Vanessa Rosetto, who was really the one who gave me the confidence to consider even recording this music, let alone proliferating it in any way. I owe her a lot. And I really think that without her influence and without her encouragement, this would certainly not be happening. at the end. Oh. 
Am I running out of tape here? Let me have a look. I'll shoot for Outclink. Well, Outclink was a, a kind of a born out of a means to stave off boredom when I was living in Miami. I didn't have any work. I was basically sitting in Adris's bedroom trying to come up with ways to pass the time. It was something that we put together concurrently with Lindus when I was mixing and overdubbing the Shadowing Lindus album, I was also working on Outlink, so there's some correlation there. Some of the sounds are used, some of the same sounds are shared. The general uh, sort of hue of both those records is similar, I think. It was the first time, I guess, I was uh, denied any access to any musical instruments, and all I had was tape and voice. So it was a good exercise in coming up with something using almost nothing. Tape-based music. Some of the leakage that comes in is just from... Uh, 
events that were going on in the house that were unavoidable. They would never stop. Adris's mother used to have a crash and she would have these Cuban children be dropped off at six in the morning and they'd be there till late at night. So there was always chaos, no carpets, tiling everywhere. So the sounds were bouncing all over the shop. And so I just had to throw out my hands and say, you know, let it all in. And um, it worked out for the best. So we did, uh, we did this stuff and it ended up on a cassette tape. But then um, you know, it disappeared and became a complete obscurity. And I thought one of the things that would be fun for Kai to do was to dig this thing up and dust it off and put it out there again with an extra track, which was from a compilation around about the same time. And uh, it, seemed to, uh, it seemed to please people. Uh, the photo on the front was from when I was... Uh, I eventually got a job in a small cinema in Miami and... That was a Polaroid taken of me there, not doing very much at all. We did another recording, we did a CDR on a farm, Green Chimneys. It was kind of an animal rehabilitation centre where children from New York City come up and they learn how to interact with animals and nature. So we went there and we made some recordings of the children and the animals and we overdubbed ourselves. So there is a second Elk Link release that people don't know about that maybe one day will afford uh, a ratio of that as well. This one is called Tension Tech. That's Tension Tech, you can feel it in your legs. That's like a wider wave of pain inside your trunks. That's Tension Tech spreading up the knees. Free damage in a civilized word. That words have no language of their own is a matter for us and them to respect. Tension, that's it, that's the word I was trying to get. That's what keeps me in check. We're all in fleckened tents of brick. Wicker clicks when tension is placed on it. Name that thing, wicker tech. That's tension, Jack, that's when you know it's done. You've worked all day on the land. You've done a good day's toil call. Well, the spoons, the spoons won't make a sound. If you grate them against the that, well, the spoons, I suppose, will soon be renewed. Polish silver on brick, name it, utensil tech. Let his own food eat his own food eat it well. it. Keep it in the custody which it just deserves. That's Tekash. Tekash speaks a million words. No, million lies. The page is getting fuller. Lest we close our hands, close book with, well, it's out. Tekash, it's it's a lot of steps, up steps, to the top step, well, top of wall. On it rests the carriage, the stairs rest. Bells, dead walls. Oh, 
You're listening to the Foxy Podcast on Independent Public Radio, The Maverick. KMSU Mankato, KMSK Austin. Broadcasting from the campus of Minnesota State University, Mankato. And we'll now continue with part two of the Kai Record Special, produced by Nick Hamilton. side now this cassette uh and your next question is amateur doubles context concept and thoughts uh well amateur doubles kind of plays on this theme of interacting with pre-existing recordings in a kind of everyday context in the way that you would listen to a piece of music and the sort of situation you would find yourself listening to other people's music and then just somehow cement your reactions into that music and make that the art. Uh, so we had uh, we had a series of car rides listening to French prog. We had the uh, the Pole record and the uh, Philippe Grancher record just playing in the car and um, use that as the as the basis for the for the thing. familiar with the originals you perhaps understand that what you're hearing in the car is actually a collage of elements from those records there's a lot of looping there's a lot of overdubbing there's a lot of uh, being aware that we were going to have this thing set up where I'll be recording these tracks from inside the car I overdubbed a lot of outside car sounds onto the audio that was going to be burnt onto the CD to play so there's kind of a lot more layering it's not obvious as a listener. Perhaps it's something that only I will ever kind of be able to hear. joy as well obviously whatever noises the children in the back seat were making in real time in relation to what they were hearing so it's kind of forcing a relationship and it was also a covert recording people didn't know I was making it so stop 
uh, and I actually think it's a very, I'm very happy with it. I think it's probably my favourite solo record I made. So if you're not familiar with the originals, uh, dig them up on YouTube, take a listen, and you'll maybe hear some of the uh, post-production work that was done on them beforehand. So that, that will do for that one. <coughs> Dan Melchior had come up through Garage Rock and um, an association with Billy Childish, this kind of Medway Sound character, who was clearly restless and looking for a new direction and was making these fairly eccentric English records. So I got in contact with him and it turns out he was a big Shadowing fan and he knew my work and so that was easy. And uh, he was definitely into the idea, so we did the excerpts and half speeds. He was unsure about what to do, and I said, well, the thing I, I like from listening to the records of yours that I have is that I really like the beginnings and the ends particularly, and, and maybe we can just do an album that just focuses on, like, you know, uh, excerpts from abandoned things you've done, a kind of a quick clipped audio scrapbook through your tape archive, come up with all sorts of short things and we'll weave them together into a record. And he thought that was fun. Some of it's at half speed, so the name is literal. Vincent over the sink and the bowls. Oh, mm-hmm. 
Vincent over the sink was a group that consisted of myself and Christopher Schuler. We'd known each other vaguely through uh, mutual friends in our youth, but never became that well acquainted. Many years passed and then we sort of reconnected. We met at an art event and started talking and realised we were on the same page in regards to artists and books or whatever. Yeah, and then we sort of started to meet up regularly and correspond and somehow one day we just decided instead of drawing pictures to um, have a jam I guess I had absolutely no musical training whatsoever and I don't even know if I really had a desire to make music but you know seemed like there was some equipment there and you know I think we're into expanding the drawing and painting stuff we were doing so I don't know, it kind of just built and built into the band that lasted maybe, what, six or seven years somehow. Yeah, then somewhere along the line, a friend of ours, Mary McDougall, who was quite handy with a high-pitched voice and percussion instruments and um, had a very unique approach to the keyboard, so Mary joined us, and then on for that we decided to, you know, treat it as a, a new entity, I suppose. And that's where The Bowls was born. The name The Bowls came from our uh, shared interest in the literary works of Jane Bowles. I think we were really trying to, uh, lyrically and with the mood of the band and our practices trying to kind of create a very similar mood that was found, or that we found in her stories, especially her short story. The bowl sort of transitioned from Vincent over the sink and departed off into its own, uh, its own thing. Yeah, I think that's about it. Thank mm-hmm. you.
And I'm sure Matthew and I will do another project together. We're talking about it. We'll find something. I'd like to do a Vincent over the sink overview. Because they have more stuff than just this cassette and this 7 inch. There are other tapes. And I'm sure he's got God knows what lying around. So it might be a nice future project. Marsha Bassett, Samara Lebowski. Uh, well, Marsha is someone I've known since the mid-90s as uh, Silk Breeze label mates with her first band, Un. Uh, Samara I knew about through uh, Hall of Fame. She was a Silk Breeze artist for a while. But we didn't actually meet until a bit later. But uh, they talked about this record they were putting together these recordings they'd made and it sounded interesting, they sounded great together and it was, uh, it was easy to see this being a Kai record. say about Mark Harwood. Pretty deep friendship I have with Mark. Mark really has a, 
a great ability like Vanessa to just work with nothing. He doesn't have any training. He has a great compositional ear, though, I think, and a great organisational skill where he can take forgettable, ordinary, mundane sounds and, and somehow take those things and, and sculpt them into some sonic landscape, which is uh, really, really a pleasure to listen to. So I'm very happy that Mark took that step. Hi, my name's Mark Howard, and I'm recording under the name Astor, and I've released two records on Graham Lampkin's Kai label, the first one being Alcor, and Inland was released last year. How it all started, um, I met Graham through... A mail order. I had always been making music, and um, but in conversation with Graham and sending him some material, um, he gave me some constructive criticism and advice and suggestions of ways to free up myself from thinking too much or overworking material, and that helped a lot in my ability to construct something which I considered I wanted to elaborate on and work on something like a full-length album or this kind of thing. Uh, some examples of Graham's advice um, was to play around with recording itself or, or set up a position whereby you're not deliberately, consciously thinking of what you're making so that the end result is something outside of yourself. An example of that would be Graham suggests that I wake up in the middle of the night, have everything ready and press record and do that when your your mindset is altered because it's in the middle of the night and you're not thinking clearly, which um, allowed me to develop the work that was appeared on the first album. The, the, the nature of it was I originally had a hard disk recorder and I would go around recording things with that, which was fine. And then I, once I was in Australia and I was at the beach and I dropped in the sand and it died anyway. It got wet and sand and rust and it was over. So I, I somebody had told me about an app that you could put on an iPhone, which, which allows pretty much the same thing. And so I installed that and I've been using that pretty much ever since. So most of my recordings are done with the phone and it would be field recording and then it's edited. There's very little processing i don't necessarily enjoy obliterating the original elements i just wanted to work out different ways of making music and there is a lot of music today which is heavily processed and relying on computers and it was definitely a conscious decision to avoid any kind of like processing of that nature or having something overtly treated with a computer because if you see a photo in a magazine which has been photoshopped you can tell and it's the same with music so i was avoiding that so from that end, it relies more on 
um, acoustic sounds, but but finding acoustic sounds that sometimes do sound electronic or sound like something that might not at first listen seem like it comes from the real world as such. So it's a matter of constantly recording and experimenting and seeing what comes out and whether that, that would be suited to something that I'd like to develop or or place within the context of a, a, a full recording. There is a means of um, challenging myself on what it actually is, whether it's music concrete or electroacoustic music or field recording, or is it narrative-based? Is it dark or is it light? Is it musical or non-musical? Um, the, these are all things that I like to play around with. I uh, recently, having played a show... Some of the feedback I got was that uh, one person mentioned visualising a lot of things when listening to the performance and another said they were hallucinating and this is all fine by me.
James Rushford and Joe Talia, who were recently here. And it's thanks to James Rushford and Joe Talia that we brought airbeds, because we didn't have anything for guests. So our old airbed uh, had a puncture. So we got, this, we got the Quest sleep system. Um, and they passed a very restful night on that. Anyway, uh, Rushford and Talia, uh, they came to my attention through Mark. Mark had been given the what ended up being Manhunter, the session tapes for that, and was asked if he was interested in doing with it. He wasn't able to help them at that time. Passed them on to me, and I thought it was great. So we edited down, because there was like an hour's worth of stuff, and so we had to kind of make a few alterations so it would fit nicely on the record. And I have to say, I think if I was pressed to give a favourite Manhunter would be one of them, maybe the one. Um, unbelievably beautiful record. Just gorgeous on every level. Manhunter is definitely the most natural and unconstructed record we've made. It was also the most immediate in terms of composing and realising material in the studio. Some listeners have interpreted Manhunter as a bunch of samples and musical references, but almost all of the instrumental material is entirely original. A lot of time was spent on things like sculpting particular synth sounds and capturing specific field recordings. However, each part of the record in its raw form was quite hi-fi and clean. As the sections of the work came together, it then became more and more of a focus to colour the work through post-production, saturating it in a heaviness of mood and atmosphere, and eventually we pushed this very far into muggy territory, making the whole record sound like a damaged version of itself. Despite this seemingly affected production, Manhunter is quite poignant to Joe and I, and really very simple in its content. In a way, it's the closest thing we've made to a record of songs. The record, in fact, originally ended with a cover of Keith Jarrett's Personal Mountains, but this was cut from the final edit.
Jason Leskelit. What can I say about Jason? I think he's probably the most talented artist I've ever known or had the pleasure to work with. He's uh, he always surprises me. Yeah, as a as a as an artist, a visionary um, use of sound is is amazing. I hope that doesn't sound too fawning, but I really have enormous respect for Jason. Matt Crafting. Well, uh, Matt Crafting, he actually ended up being on the Salmon Run CD. He's not credited, but he's in the mix somewhere. He brought down a suitcase and was opening it and closing it, and that ended up somehow tied into one of the pieces. He's on that, uncredited. So that's something that has to be rectified on a reissue, I suppose. This is Matt Crafting. I have been making music of... All sorts, 
since I was 15 or so. Um, and then a few years ago, he eventually settled on the concept of himself as a very simple, honest uh, tape musician. Um, he's built he's built up his personal style from there to a point where it's now very convincing. Uh, and people are paying attention to his work, and um, so he came down. I brought down a bunch of material that I had recorded previously to Graham's place in Poughkeepsie where we went through a lot of experiments and did certain things to the source material I had brought. We went into weird locations to record it um, being played back and then I brought the results back with me to Western Massachusetts where I worked pretty intensively probably for another month or so um, but the whole thing was done pretty fast. He went away and returned an amazing record, Limfest, he called it. I don't know what it means. Um, it's a series of very obvious sources that I obscured, or very obscure references that I tried to make obvious and plain. Most things got filtered onto a cassette before eventually being played back in the room, my living room, and uh, most of what you hear is a essentially a high-quality field recording made in my living room, broken down into little tracks. That's about all that I want to say, although I could give you another heads-up and say that most of the titles to the tracks are either slightly altered or unaltered references to people and places from my past. So I will leave you with that.
So now I'm going to talk about my Abyssane Atasay 7 inch. The A side Abyssane came from one of many practice cassettes that I used to record, entering a random phrase or word into YouTube and then improvising live with whatever it threw back at me. More often than not, the results wouldn't be any of any use for one reason or another, but sometimes I'd get something quite nice, um, and this was one such occasion. Uh, the lyric to that was improvised live on the spot. The B-side, At A Say, came from an aborted LP I had planned of songs based on car crashes. Uh, that was inspired by the fact that the car we recorded the Amateur Doubles LP in was involved in a collision shortly after and was written off. And I thought it would be uh, be a fun idea um, and draw that saga to a close but it ended up being a very unpopular idea and I wasn't allowed I wasn't allowed to realise it so I just took one track which was one of my favourites and used it as the B-side the cover art was taken at a restaurant nightclub called Shadows on the Hudson not normally the kind of place that we would go but we were recommended it I ordered a crab cake and was taken very ill with food poisoning about an hour later so that kind of black cursed photo on the front seemed uh, quite apt there's a lot of dark energy on this record it's quite a quite a cursed object I guess and it seemed uh, seemed to come together quite well Oh, my 
Hopefully this will be uh, enough for you, Nick. Here's the phone. Let's find out who's on the phone, shall we? The bell. Telling me the time is up. D.D. Barrett invited me to stop by the Tabletop Diner to discuss issues facing our community. Twenty-one twenty-five South Road, Route Nine, Poughkeepsie. So you are. I've got a lunch appointment with D.D. Barrett if I want it. Anyway, Nick, I'll sign off here, mate. Let me know if you want anything else. Ta-da. And that concludes the Kai Records feature that Nick Hamilton had produced. If you're looking for more information about Kai Records and some of the artists that appeared throughout the show, you can head over to our website at freeformfreakout.com. 
Or if you have any questions for me directly, you can shoot me an email at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Check back with us in another couple weeks.